0: So turn in your Bible with me to Luke chapter 2 as we continue our focus on the songs of advent. We're looking at several of the passages in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke that talk about the people who celebrated the birth of Jesus 2000 years ago. We saw already the song of Zechariah who was the priest who was made unable to talk for a while because he became the father of John the Baptist. And then last week we looked at the Song of Mary called the Magnificat. And today we're looking at the Song of Simeon. Now this one may not be as familiar to you as the others were. The Song of Simeon, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Okay, so if you'll turn right there uh, I'm going to read that passage and then we'll talk about it together. Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 21. Now just keep in mind, Jesus now has been born. He has already been born in the manger of Bethlehem. It happened just a few days before the passage that we're about to read. Okay? Luke 2 beginning verse 21. It says, at the end of eight days, when he, that is Jesus, was circumcised. He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they, and that's Joseph and Mary, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord thanks be to God God. let's pray father thank you for this passage and we thank you for this man Simeon we pray that you will help us to understand what this passage is all about and most of all Lord we want to see Jesus and see him more clearly and we pray this in his name Amen. my parents though they are both dead now used to love to remind me and everybody else about a story that happened around Christmas time when I was just a little kid. I had to be no more than four years old, probably. But uh, they told me this over and over and over again that uh, on Christmas Eve, I woke up at like midnight and walked down the hallway and peered around the corner to where our Christmas tree and all of the gifts were. And of course, there were my mom and dad still up I looked around there and I said to them, Is the toys come yet? And I wish I had a dollar for every time my parents told that story. Is the toys come yet? I was 40 years old and they were still going around telling everybody. Our little boy Michael said, Is the toys come yet? But, you know, you can sort of understand why a kid would do that, right? Unable to sleep on Christmas Eve because he's so excited. He's been waiting and waiting and waiting so long. This morning we're talking about waiting. And waiting is no laughing matter for many, many people. wonder what you're waiting for this morning. I suspect that there are many in our midst this morning who are waiting for something. Maybe it's for physical healing in your life or emotional healing. Maybe it's for a job interview or a promotion that you've been hoping for. Perhaps an answer to a prayer that you've prayed again and again and again. Or the salvation of a friend or of a relative. But whatever the case, you've been waiting. And you know what? Waiting is one of the great themes of the Bible. If you go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, you see waiting over and over and over again. A few examples, Noah. Noah waited for months in the ark while the promise of dry ground was still not real. Abraham had to wait 25 years for the promise of a son. Moses had to wait 40 years, 40 years in the desert before God appeared to him in the burning bush. Job, you've read the book of Job, I suspect. He had to wait for an answer to his many questions. David waited to, he wanted to build a temple for God, but he had to wait until his son Solomon did it. The Old Testament prophets had to wait during a 70-year exile to see God restore his people to their homeland. And we could go on and on because there are many examples of waiting throughout the Bible. Well, our text this morning is about someone else who waited. His name, Simeon. Now, Simeon is not a familiar figure to many, but because he just kind of comes and goes right here in this passage in Luke chapter 2. He's an old man, it says. Now, there's one tradition that says he was 113 years old. I have no idea why they came up with that number. It may be true, but whether it's true or not, verse 25 of this passage tells us that Simeon had been waiting for a long time for the consolation of Israel. Now you might wanna underline or highlight that phrase in your Bible or just try to remember it because we're going to talk today about what consolation is all about. I wanna talk about that word and give you four things. First, what it is, consolation, what it is. Secondly, who is it for? Third, what did Jesus do to procure consolation? And finally, how does it become yours? How do you have consolation from God? And as we go through this, you might just find out that you're a lot like Simeon, waiting for consolation. So let's dive in and talk first about what it is. That's the first question. What is meant by consolation? consolation. It's not a word we use very often, is it? The word consolation means comfort or encouragement. And it's actually the Greek word paraklesis. Now, some of you that might have done a lot of word studies and things like that, you might have heard that word before. It's also called paraklete. Paraklete means one who comes alongside. One who comes alongside. Now, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is called our paraclete because the Holy Spirit comes alongside to encourage and to comfort. But here in this passage, Jesus is referred to as the paraclete of Israel, the consolation or the comforter or the one who comes alongside to encourage. Is that something new? Have you ever thought of Jesus being the one who comes alongside to give you encouragement. That's what the consolation of Israel is all about. So verse 25 says that Simeon was waiting impatiently for this consolation to arrive. He was eagerly expecting it. He was anxiously looking for the arrival of the one who was to come alongside his people, the one who was to come to the aid of his people, for they were in deep distress. You see, it had been a long time since God had spoken to his people. It had been some 400 years since the people of God had heard from God. God's last official words to the people were recorded in the prophet Malachi. And that's the last book of the Old Testament, right? And that was some 400 years or more before this event here in Luke chapter 2. And the conditions of things in Israel were at an all-time low. The Roman government occupied the land. A godless king named Herod ruled over Judea. Skepticism and cynicism had set in because the people had pretty much given up hope in a deliverer coming. I mean, can you imagine four centuries going by without a word from heaven? The people of God were fragmented into different sects. S-E-C-T-S, sects, that competed with one another for control. And so they were asking the question, where is this deliverer that we had been promised in the Old Testament time period? Where was the consolation that God had promised? Earlier this morning, as Dan led us through worship, do you remember what the words of assurance were after we confessed our sin? From Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort. Says your God. Isaiah the prophet had foretold that a redeemer would come to comfort all who mourn and to give them a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. But where was that redeemer? Where was that comfort? They didn't see it. The prophet Zechariah had promised that the Lord would again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Jeremiah the prophet. He had spoken about a day when maidens would dance and be glad, when God would turn Israel's mourning into gladness and give them comfort instead of joy, uh, comfort and joy instead of sorrow. Where was that God? I mean, can't you imagine that that's the question that these people were asking? And some of you this morning can relate to those people and to Simeon. There are people in this church who have prayed day after day for someone or something to change. For God to take away your depression, perhaps. For God to heal you of your loneliness. Or your struggle with a recurring sin. Or to bring somebody you love to Jesus. Or to just make things right in the world. You've been praying that and hoping for that and wishing for that for years, some of you. You know how it feels to wait and to wonder if you're... A person like that, if God is really there, if God has heard your prayers, and if God truly cares about your situation. Well, God had promised Simeon that he, Simeon, would see the Lord's Christ. You see that in verse 26? God had promised Simeon that he would see the Lord's Christ with his own eyes. So every day for years, I can imagine, Simeon would walk down the same road to the temple. He would go in the temple grounds and he would look around and he would ask the priests who were doing their work there, has the Messiah come yet? Has the Messiah come yet? But every day, for years and years, the priests would look at Simeon and they would say, no, Simeon, not yet, not today, going back home. But this day was different. This day in Luke chapter 2 was different. Because on this day, there were three people in the temple that Simeon had never seen before. A young man named Joseph. A young mom named Mary. And a little baby, just shy of six weeks old, named Jesus. And right away, Simeon knew that this was no ordinary child. This was the Son of God, the one that Simeon had been waiting for for so long. And so when Simeon saw Jesus in the arms of his mother Mary, he rushed over as fast as his old 113-year-old legs could carry him. And he asked her, would you please let me take this child in my arms? He held Jesus in his arms and he spoke the words recorded in verses 29 through 32. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This song of Simeon is called the Nunc Dimittis. Those are the first two words in the Latin translation of this passage. It means now dismiss. Now dismiss. Now you can let me go. Now I'm ready to die, Lord, because I've finally seen the one that I've been waiting for for so long. So that's what consolation is. It's the encouragement that Jesus brought us by coming alongside and being our comforter. So let's talk about the second thing. Who is it for? Who is this consolation for? Well, listen to what Simeon says in verse 30. He says, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Now, that means all nations, all people groups. And then he goes on to say, a light for revelation to the who? Gentiles Gentiles. and for glory to your people Israel. Now, folks, this may not sound that stunning to you, but this is stunning. This is astonishing news that the consolation of Israel is for the world Not just for this little piece of real estate called the Holy Land. Jesus Christ's consolation is for everybody. Not just the Jews, but everybody. Outsiders, foreigners, pagans, as well as Israelites. You remember, you know the Christmas story, right? You you remember what the angel said to the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born? And we're going to look at this on Christmas Eve, by the way. The angel said... Fear not, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. See, that's the same message as we see here in the Song of Simeon. It's for all nations. Um, I grew up in a little town in South Carolina in the era of, of course, racial segregation. The 50s and 60s were rife with all kinds of racial problems. Well, I remember... I used to go to a doctor that had two different waiting rooms. Maybe some of you my age or older can remember this in the South, if you grew up in the South. There were two different waiting rooms. White people would go in one door and sit in this waiting room. But we could look over our shoulders because there was another waiting room over here for people who were of a different race. Two different waiting rooms, two different groups, a division between white and black that has fortunately come to an end. Because see, in the kingdom of God, there are no two separate waiting rooms. There are no separate groups in the kingdom of God. Everybody has equal standing, equal access to the Father. As Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 3, There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Everyone who trusts in Jesus has equal standing and equal access to God. The gospel of Christ is an inclusive gospel. Nobody is outside the reach of God's grace. It doesn't matter how much or how little you know. It doesn't matter how much or how little you have. It doesn't matter where you're from, where you've been, or what you've done. John Ortberg said, Venture capitalists and Hollywood stars and school janitors and Somalian tribesmen stand before God on level ground. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Some of you might have been, like my wife and I, have been watching The Crown on television, a series about the British monarchy. And this latest uh, series has included the story of Princess Diana. Do you remember what Princess Di was called when she was alive? And, well, um, the people's princess. The people's princess. Well, Jesus is the people's savior. He is yet red and yellow, black and white. All are precious in His sight. No wonder then that verse 33 says that the child's father and mother marveled. You see that word? They marveled at what Simeon said about Him. Because this baby, this Messiah, is our paraclete. He is our comforter, our encourager, the Savior of both Jew and Gentile. We are all the same at the foot of the cross. So consolation, what is it? Who is it for? And third question, what did Jesus do to procure it for us? What did Jesus do to bring us this consolation? Two things. First, he lived for you. And second, he suffered and died for you. Now, let's look at both of those, but let's begin with the second and then talk about the first. Jesus suffered and died to bring us consolation. Look at verses 34 and 35. Simeon's song, he goes on to say, Simeon said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And then he sort of looks at Mary I think, primarily, and says, A sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, these verses are speaking of Jesus' sufferings and death. Because throughout his life and in his death, Jesus Christ was opposed, right? The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He came to his own, John 1:11 says, and his own did not receive him. And do you know that on the very day that Jesus started his ministry in his own hometown, the religious authorities tried to kill him? You can see that in Luke chapter 4, just a few pages over from where we are right now. Why? Why did the religious leaders of the people hate Jesus so much? Why did they want to get him out of the way? Well, it's because of what it says in verse 35. It was because the thoughts from many hearts were revealed by Jesus. Jesus, in other words, exposed what was going on in the hearts of people. He exposed their secret sins, their motives, their hypocrisy, their envy, their pride, their self-righteousness. And they didn't like that. And in the end, as you know, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own followers, forsaken by his friends, tried and condemned by a Roman court, and nailed to a cross like a common criminal. Jesus was opposed. His sufferings and his death were one thing that Jesus did for us to bring us encouragement. But not only that, Jesus lived for us too. Jesus lived for us. And what I mean by that is that Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled God's law on our behalf. And it was through His life of obedience to the law that Jesus brought us consolation. Not just His sufferings, not just the cross, but throughout His life, Jesus was living in such a way as to fulfill the law of God. Um, Have you ever wondered why it was necessary for Jesus to be born as a baby and live for 33 years before dying on the cross. I mean, if Christianity is about the cross, and we would all say it's definitely about the cross, why take 33 years to get there? You know, why didn't God just drop His Son down here to planet Earth at the age of 33 and let Him get nailed to the cross and be done with it? Well, it's because the life of Jesus is just as important to your salvation as His death and resurrection. You ever thought about that? His whole life was an aspect of His saving us. Let me explain what I mean by that. First of all, do you notice in this passage a very big emphasis on the law of God? Four times you see the phrase law of God in this passage. Four times, verse 22, the law of Moses. Verse 23, the law of the Lord. Verse 24, the law of the Lord. Verse 27, the custom of the law. Why this constant emphasis on the law? Well, it's because it was just as necessary for Christ to live for you and obey the law for you as it was for Him to die on the cross for you and rise again. And Jesus lived for you and obeyed the law for you from almost the very first day He was born. That is brought out in this passage in several ways. Verse 21 through 24 tells us about three things that had to be done every time a Jewish baby boy was born. And maybe some of this was a little bit confusing, so let me explain it to you. In verse 21, the first verse I read says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. That was part of the law of God for little baby boys. In verse 22, it's mentioned that there is a certain rite, R-I-T-E, that Mary had to go through, and it's called the purification of the mother. You know, you can look back in Leviticus 12 if you want to research this a little bit more. But there was a certain part of the law that said that a Jewish woman, 40 days after delivering a baby boy was considered ceremonially unclean. Now, I don't know why, but for a baby girl, it was 80 days. (laughs) A baby girl, 80 days. A baby boy, 40 days. I don't know. That's one of the questions I've got for the Lord when we get home. I don't know why the difference. But 40 days uh, were a period of time in which a Mom, who delivered a baby boy, was considered ceremonially unclean. That means she couldn't enter the sanctuary of God. And so on the 40th day, she had to bring a burnt offering and a sin offering to the priest in order to be declared clean again. And that's what we see going on in verse 22. And then verse 23 refers to the consecration of the firstborn son. Now, you can write Exodus 13 in your margin there because that's where that is talked about, Exodus 13. It says that every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Now, if I haven't lost you already, I'm probably going to lose you now. But what's going on is that this goes back to the Passover. You remember the Passover story in the book of Exodus when God spared the Israelites. And at that time, God claimed the Levites as His own. And all the other tribes, all the other 11 tribes, had to redeem their firstborn sons to exempt them from temple service by paying five shekels of silver. So Jesus, not being a Levite, he was from the tribe of what? Judah. He had to be redeemed by the payment of these five shekels of silver. And so in verses 21, 22, and 23 though it might have been a little confusing for you, it, it's talking about certain things that the, Mary and Joseph had to go through with Jesus to obey the law. So here's what I'm driving at. By going through these things, Jesus was already at the age of 40 days fulfilling the requirements of the law of God. And he continued to do that throughout his life, right? He obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. He never lied. He never cheated. He never stole. He never coveted. In a word, he was perfectly what? Righteous. Remember the white on the candy cane? Jesus was pure. He was righteous. He obeyed the law. Why is that important? It's important because You and I have a twofold problem. We have a twofold problem. We are sinful from birth, number one, but number two, we lack righteousness. Now, those two things are a little bit different. We do things that are wrong, and we lack things that are right. You follow? And Jesus Christ, through his life of obedience, addressed our need of righteousness. Here's a little illustration I picked up somewhere along the way. Let's suppose that you go to your ATM one day to check the balance of your bank account. And you stick your debit card in there and you punch in your password. And, oh my, on the screen it says that you are are drowning in a sea of red ink. You are overdrawn to the amount of a million dollars. Wow, I didn't even know I had a million dollars, much less be overdrawn. But you're, you're in the negative, right? Well, that's a big problem because you owe all this money. Well, fortunately, behind you is a rich person. And that rich person who knows your Predicament steps over and sticks his debit card in there and transfers a million dollars into your account. Wonderful. Yay, that solved one of my problems, but now I've got what? Zero. (laughs) That's not very good either. I don't just need an absence of red ink. I need a positive amount of righteousness. I need not only to be forgiven, right? I need to be considered righteous. Jesus Christ meets both needs. He died the death you should have died because of your sin, but He lived the life you are supposed to live. He died on the cross and rose again so that you could be forgiven, but He lived a perfect life so that you can be righteous. Does all this make sense? You follow all of that? So when you trust in Jesus, you see, you get both benefits. Your sins are washed away by his death on the cross, and you are counted righteous by his perfect life. So that in short, it could be said that there is no salvation without the cross, but there's also no salvation with only the cross. Jesus had to be born as a baby and perfectly fulfill the law of God so that you could have consolation. Well, we've answered three of our four questions about it. What is it? Who is it for? What did Jesus do to procure consolation for you? Here's the big big question of the day. How does it become yours? How does this comfort, this encouragement... How does this forgiveness and righteousness become yours? Answer, by receiving Christ into your life. By turning from sin and independence from God and committing yourself to following Jesus. Look with me at verse 34 of our text. This is still Simeon talking and he says to Joseph and Mary, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. You know what I see in that verse? I see that there are basically two types of people in the world there are those who fall, and there are those who rise. There are those who receive Christ, and there are those who reject Christ. Those who crown Jesus Lord, and those who crown themselves Lord. And in the end, there are but two destinies, heaven and hell. Your destiny depends on what you do with Jesus of Nazareth. Neutrality, you see, is impossible. You can't be in the middle. You have to decide where you stand with Christ. He is the pivot of humanity. He is the watershed issue. For some, Christ is a stone of offense. While for others, he is a rock of refuge. He's either your greatest friend or your worst enemy. It's up to you. Which one will it be? Earlier today, I asked you, what are you waiting for? Because everybody's waiting for consolation in one way or another. And it's not found in toys or money or jobs or popularity or success or anything else in this world. It's found in Jesus Christ. And if you've never prayed and asked God to forgive you, to come into your life and be your consolation, here's what you need to do. It's very simple. Go to Him. Go to Him. Go to Him and pray and admit your sins to Him and ask Him to wipe them away and then commit yourself to following Jesus. Rely on Him alone. Not your good works, not coming to church, not being good, not trying harder but relying on him alone for salvation. You do that and you'll be able to sing with Simeon. I'm ready to die, Lord. Take me anytime. Whenever you call your number, I'm ready to go because I have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this man. We will meet him one day, this man Simeon. And we thank you that you used him to give us this message today about the consolation that Jesus brings to our lives. And Father, we just pray that though almost everybody in this room has been to this church over and over and over again, if there's someone who may lack the assurance that they are really your child, if there's somebody here who wonders if you've really forgiven them, we pray that today this will be the day sort of like the day Simeon had, the day when they see and experience your salvation, your healing, your, your saving grace. We thank you that Jesus Christ has done it all. He lived the life that we should live. He died the death we deserved so that we can look you in the face and know that we are loved. Lord, what good news that is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.